Hi, everyone. This is Jackson Steger. I'm the producer for the show. And before we get started today, wanted to let you know about OnDeck's newest fellowship. And I think that this audience would find it particularly interesting. So Execs on Deck is a eight-week fellowship for leaders with 12-plus years experience looking for their next VP or C-suite level role at a high-growth startup. The program provides one-to-one executive coaching, personalized introductions to top startups looking for talent, and a world-class peer community to help you find or create that perfect next role. So if you're thinking about what's next, you can learn more slash apply at beyonddeck.com slash execs. Space is limited and applications for the first cohort close on April 9th. Thanks. Hey everyone, this is Eric Tornberg, and you're listening to Execs by On Deck. Execs is a show for founders, operators, and leaders who want to understand the playbooks, frameworks, and tactics that leading tech companies today have used to scale. Our guests are tech execs in key roles at top tech companies who share their hard-won, earned secrets on how to scale faster. Emil Michael was the chief business officer at Uber during their hyperscale period from 2013 to 2017. In this episode, Emil shares crucial lessons from Uber. He details how and why to develop an ambitious, blitz-scaling mentality from day one, imparts specific tactics learned from launching Uber in China, and advises patients when it comes to hiring execs. Emil, when you, when you look back at the, uh, the arc of your career, the various experiences that you, you've had, what is sort of the threads that you've kept on pulling or the, or the through line between them in terms of what's, uh, what's garnered your, your interest and where you've chosen to, to spend your time? And I'm also curious how you'd sort of define the, the expertise or sort of different intersection of expertise that you've uh, you've developed along the way. I would say that, you know, the consistent thing I'm looking for when I'm joining a business that I'm going to help drive is really the, the relationship I have with the founder, because I've, I've joined a bunch of founder-led companies. And is that going to be productive? Am I going to enjoy it? Am I going to learn? Are we on the same page ambition-wise? Are we complementary from a skill set standpoint? And that's been, for me, the most important thing. Obviously, the business, and is it a good business or interesting business, is sec- is there's a close second. But I joined Clout. I, ha- I had some things that didn't really sort of take off. So I've been wrong on number two, but I've never been wrong on number one. I've always worked with great, great founders. Uh, and so that's been the consistent theme. And I do a lot of work before I join a company, whether it's sort of referencing them, the people, um, I said, I, you know, so, some would say I take a long time to decide. Travis would say that because uh, he recruited me for like a year and a half. Um, I wish I had that year and a half back because uh, I would add an extra zero. But but uh, that's been the consistent theme on how would I describe where I sit in these orgs? You know, it, it, it's not as common nowadays, but it, it used to be sort of uh, a Chinese business model thing in China, sort of Alibaba, Tencent, all these companies have a CEO founder and a kind of vice chairman, chief business officer. They have uh, Jack Ma and Joe Tsai, uh, Pony Ma and, uh, and uh, I forget to say, Martin Lau. So you have these sort of business and product tech sort of leaders. So I, I'm a business guy and that, what that's evolved to 
over time has been fundraising for private companies, M&A, strategic partnerships. And then sometimes I'm incubating businesses within the business. Uh, so I, I built Uber for business or I'd run geographies like Uber China or whatever. And it's sort of like, I call it the venture capital arm of companies, investing in new ideas, being on the cutting edge of partnerships that are driving, you know, value creation in the business, raising money, which I've done a lot of now. Uh, and it's all those business functions that face the outside world, basically, uh, is how I describe it. Why do you think it's not as common anymore? Or what, what are sort of the trade-offs, the pros and cons of having that model versus, versus an alternative model? Yeah. the So it is more common for the CFO to be in charge of fundraising and M&A. So that is the difference between you know, the Chinese model and the, and the historically American model. And is it changing? I think it's it continues to be still mostly that's the model. But now... The interesting thing that's happening in the world is you have a dearth of CFOs, huge dearth because of all these SPACs, all the IPOs that have happened in the last few years where you finally have like some of the biggest IPO years in the last decade. So all the CFOs have been sucked out into these companies. And now, you know, I think people might look at chief business officers again as like, okay, well, maybe that's it. And I can have a VP finance or SVP of finance cover the controller treasury and accounting functions and have this sort of M&A and fundraising and strategic uh, investment, you know, strategic partnership functions and a chief business officer. Trade-offs are, you have someone like, with my skill set out in the world, I'm meeting investors all the time. And my job is outside the company. It's out of the office. So you get some synergy with that, right? Or maybe I'm doing a strategic partnership and they want to add some money to a financing. So you add some efficiency on that and some skin in the game on these deep partnerships. What you lose is, you know, just the CFO candidate who wants that job is a different candidate. Makes sense. And are, are, are you seeing companies do less of the chief business officer role in general, or are they doing it, but it just has a different scope? They're, you know, they're doing it. Like, I get, obviously, I, get, I, I don't have a perfect view as to the industry, but I get a lot of calls of, hey, I want the next Emil from like five, 10 years ago. <laughs> Can you help me find that person? Uh, and, and I'm like, well, well, here's the, you know, they asked the same question you did. It's like, what is your scope? Like, what are the things you did? And they're like, huh, that's, I hadn't thought about that. So it's still kind of a, a newish thing. Um, and I think sometimes what they're looking for is not necessarily a partner to do what I did, but like someone who's in, who's in, the, uh, in the trench with them who has broad perspective and broad responsibility across the company. And so it is true that culturally CFOs and founder product and tech oriented founders are not like culturally or personality wise who are not in the trenches together. Like they don't, you know, they're not natural partners. So they're looking for a partner that they actually want to spend time with and have, have a similar point of view on. So it goes very back and forth depending on the founder. Totally. I want to spend a bunch of time on uh, sort of you know lessons from hypergrowth at, at at Uber, but but before that, I want to start with um, with the cloud experience in the sense that you know you alluded to it not not reaching its its potential. Why do you think that was? Or maybe another question is if you can go back in time and and try to you know do, do anything differently, what what might that have been or any lessons from that experience? Yeah, I mean, cloud. The problem was we just didn't have a business model around the idea, right? It was the idea of something that measured one's clout slash credibility slash importance on social media actually is an interesting idea, even more so today than it was back then, because the noise of social media, especially on Twitter, is like, you know, one random person says something, you know, and, and you know, who's that person to say that? This was a way of saying, well, 
that's fine for that person to say something, but they don't know anything about the subject. Here's the 10 other people who do. Uh, so the idea is a good idea. I just don't know how you, it's a profit-making idea. Uh, so that was always the problem. And I still think if you launch Cloud Today, it would have a life, uh, it would have a life as a product feature, but not as a business. Yeah, no, uh, fascinating. In between Cloud and, and Uber, I guess at a high level, what, what is sort of your philosophy of, of joining companies? You mentioned that you you like to take a, a long time, but is it mostly founder driven? Are you, how are you thinking about the industries or what's been your, your approach? Yeah, I mean, look, I'll, I'll never at this point join a non-founder driven company. Like the, the, the reason, and it's being a little bit sort of tarnished by sort of some of these stories uh, these days uh, of these sort of Jesus founder or whatever. It's not really like that. If you've been inside these companies, there's mad respect for the people who go through the hard work of starting them and they do have an aura around them. But ultimately the thing that, the thing that makes that model work most of the time, much of the time is they have a long-term perspective. This is their, invention that they've been thinking about how it extends and extends and extends for the next multiple decades. And that stick to that long-term perspective, which is I'm building something to last. I'm not just being hired to financially engineer an outcome is stuff I resonate with. It's admission driven by definition. So that's really important. Now, could, are there bad founders? Of course. Are there founders who, are, who have bad ideas? Yes. So you spend your time finding the founders who have the vision that you share, have the values you share, have the business, you know, ideas that you share. Um, and that's really, you know, for me, been the theme. Totally. When you, when you first joined Uber, what was your expectation of, of how you, uh, what you, of what your role was or, and how it was going to evolve over time? Or, or was it sort of exactly what, what, what you, you know, you defined as it when you mentioned the CBO? Yeah, you know, it's a, I love answering this type of question because, Travis and I known each other for a while. We're friends and we're sitting in a room. We're like, how do we define your role? And we both were like, you know, you kind of want flexibility in your kind of partner. So, so we came up with this definition, which is you're the face to the ex, you're the external face of Uber, uh, not to, from a PR standpoint, but to other businesses, you're the external face to other businesses, which include investment firms and, and so on. And over time, we'll see what, we put in that bucket. Uh, and so I was comfortable, I was 40 years old at the time, taking the risk of like, I don't exactly know, but it's like this stuff and I'm going to just work hard and, and you know, evolve and see what that becomes. And, and that synced with Travis's too, because, you know, he, he, you know, it took, it takes him a long time to trust people also. So, uh, so that worked for both of us, but that's how it started. Yeah. One sentence. You know, the external wow. face for Uber to businesses worldwide. Wow. And as a prompt, you know, Reid Hoffman came out with this book the other year uh, called Blitzscaling, um, how to go really fast. Let's pretend that that same title was written, you know, by by you or by, you know, Travis or by become the early leaders of Uber. What do you think would be some of the, the, the positive takeaways or lessons that other companies uh, can learn from Uber's success? Um, I mean, there's so much good stuff there. I'll start by saying the ambition to be global from day one was really rare before 2010. You know, people, especially for a business that lived probably part in the, in the digital space and part in the, in the physical space, right? And so that ambition from day one was like, okay, you have to have a system for that. You have to have a blitzscaling mentality for that. 
And so thinking you want to be global actually helps you create this system for how you blitz scale. Um, because you know, you're like, okay, well, we should be in the top 100 cities in the world. You're like, okay, they're so different. What are the commonalities? What are the differences? How do we playbook them? How do we create materials so that you can give it to someone and they can drop in a city and kind of know 70% of what they need to know? And so those, that was sort of one lesson. The other was, you know, how, what, what are the adjacent businesses that are interesting and when do you start them and when do you not? One would argue, uh, or I would argue that Uber Eats was started early and it made investors nervous, but it was the best idea we've had to start that adjacent sort of vertical alongside of ride sharing. I would argue also that investing in self-driving car, uh, self cars starting in 2013 was, or 14 was a bit early, right? Because the investment cycle, the regulatory cycle, all those cycles, that means you consume a lot of cash on the way up. Um, so blitz scaling has its limits is the sort of second point, right? Uh, and you have to, you're going to not get it perfect if you're truly blitz scaling. Um, and then third people, it's hiring, 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 man. The people, people make a company. Um, and when you're blitz scaling, if you let go of the quality type, it multiplies faster. So the actual culture and performance like dilutes really fast in blitz scaling. So it's actually more important to keep your bar high uh, there. And, I think, and so those are kind of, I'd say the three lessons I've got for blitz scalers. Yeah. Let's dig deep on the, on the hiring front. And, and this is something that we are experiencing a lot now, you know, um, a year ago we were like 50 people and now we're 250 people. And so, you know, we've learned some lessons the hard way and, and, and are in the process of learning, learning lessons and, but also, you know, have, 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 have got some things right. What do you think are the biggest principles to, or, you know, obviously keep, keep quality high. How do you make sure you, you do that? Or what are some of the non-obvious things that you impart to, to other companies that maybe is not so obvious? To yeah. I mean, a couple of ideas for you. Number one, the leaders, whether it was Travis and Ryan Graves or me, interview everyone on your team for as long as you can. At some point, you won't be you as a leader won't be able to interview everybody, or you won't be able to interview everybody in this job category. For us, it was general managers of cities. Like I think Travis and Ryan interviewed every one of them until there was like you know a hundred of them. And then it became, you know, you couldn't, you know, it was too much, too time consuming. But as long as you can do that means that you will have some consistency in the filter. And that consistency amongst the, those people that you personally interviewed, and yeah, you're going to make mistakes, will sort of drive consistency in a multiplicative way downstream. The second thing is spend a third of your time recruiting. And that means, you know, three interviews a day, 30 minutes every day for your whole, you know, if the company, for as long as the company's blitz scaling and it's super painful, but you just got to do it. And not only will you get better asking questions, you'll be, you'll get better at what kind of talent is out there. You'll get ideas on new things to look for um, and you'll create a machine. So that's the second thing. And I guess what I'd say third is, you know, we did a lot, you know, Uber did a lot of summits. So you have this far flung employee thing. You don't have quite have this problem just yet, but you have this far flung uh, group of people. We'd actually bring them back very frequently to trade, to trade notes and to create camaraderie and uh, so, you know, social connections and so on. And that's when your blitz scaling sort of connected the social fabric of the company together, the ideas traded faster, best practices distributed, you know, got distributed faster. So those are 
those are the key things for leaders, I would say, in a blitzscaling company. 50 to 250 is a big number. That's a big change. Yeah. yeah. And, and when you did three interviews a day, would you and Travis kind of like divide and conquer? Like, hey, you'll, you'll do them for these roles. You'll do them for these roles. Did you own hiring for any of, any of those roles or you were just supporting? Yeah, well, so kind of I did three interviews a day for people in my org, right? And then eventually he stopped interviewing general managers and ops and he was only interviewing execs. And then we would, we would tackle the execs. And I was more of the recruiter of execs. I'd go find them and have lunch with them wherever they were in the country of the world. You know, do the soft interview and then sort of bring them in if I thought that. And then, you know, on the technical side, he would take more of a lead, obviously, with the CTO types. And I would take more of a lead on the business and operations types. And, that you know, so eventually you have to divide up, especially with exec hires, because exec hires take the longest. And they're the most risky yeah. and the most and have potentially the most upside. Yeah. The, the only exec we've hired is a, is a CTO. Uh, we I, I, have a, I have a co-CEO, so we're top heavy on, on that front. Um, but the... But yeah, we need to hire a lot of execs. What was your sort of like process or philosophy on on finding them or or building that top of funnel or or what advice do you have on on exec hiring in general? Yeah, so I have some hard hard lessons here, and no one wants to no one wants to believe this, but fifty <laughs> percent of exec hires at a high growth company fail. Fifty, it's like a one. No matter how hard you work at it, no matter how yeah. like, much you interview, it's just how it is, and it's. Partly, like, just culturally, they think they want that, but they don't actually want what a startup is, uh, you know, or, you know, the company just sort of not ready for a level of formality and bureaucracy and process that they bring, uh, but it, but the company thought it was, right? Uh, so it's really, it's just a high failure rate. So therefore, my best answer to that is try to speed up the process because you know you're not going to get it perfectly right. On both sides. Right. And, and obviously, if something doesn't work out, be willing to cut it faster. Because if those are the odds, no matter how hard you worked at it, and I've done it fast, I've got it slow, I've done whatever, then fast is the better answer. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and also with execs, it's sort of like the ones who are doing this, you know, there are a lot of them who are doing it for the wrong reasons. They see a lot of money being made by younger people faster. <laughs> you know, that's. That's a tough, you know, that that one, that type of answer, even if they're not saying it, but you know, that's what they're trying to do, almost never works. The person who's gone through tech companies actually has seen it before, but they just happen to be senior. They kind of get it. They're much more likely to not have that be sort of their motivation. And they're most more likely to understand like, yeah, I'm going to get into this. It's going to be a bigger you know, shit show than I, than I remember. But I remember being in shit shows before. Uh, so their muscle memory is still there. So, you know, those are the those are the things I'd say is just, you know, test for motivation, test for sort of flexibility, test for are they willing to learn a new playbook, not just bring all their buddies or gals and friends just from their company to drop them in here. And that's how they establish power or land grab or create orgs. Are they willing to say, like, I'll come in with nobody and I'll, I'll hire all new people, I'll manage the people you hired, you know, how flexible are they really are. So ask them how they build their org. And if their first go-to is like, I'd go to the people I, I had, you know, who worked for me at so-and-so company, that's also a red flag. Yeah. It's interesting because, so if we take that, um, that idea that, hey, you know, 50% of them might not work out or high percentage of them won't work out, there might be a pressure to kind of like do a trial um, or, or something. But, but then there's the question of, hey, if they're on trial, is that a real trial? Like they can't be a fake, you know, 
you know, CTO or COO or something, they need to like have the title. Yeah. So do you just say, Hey, let's go for it. You know, the, right here's the, the part uh, I'll, I'll, I'll answer you and I'll give you a little more substance, which is trials don't work because at the most senior levels, because they actually can't unplug from whatever they're doing that easily for something temporary. You're probably older. They probably have families or some deeper connections into whatever they're doing. So like half pulling that out means the trial's definitely going to fail. So you're actually not, the trial's never going to work because they're half in, half out. The other thing I've, I've learned over the years is when an exec is not willing to move to headquarters, and this is a little bit pre-COVID thinking, they're like, well, I'm going to get an apartment and I'll, you know, I'll, after a year, I'll do that. Almost never works because they haven't emotionally committed to the place or to the mission. Right. And it's not, they may not be intentionally thinking that they would have a foot out the door waiting in case this is not what they expected, but that's what it says. Um, and it's often, oh, the kids are in school, like, you know, when they're done in June, I'll, I'll move out. It's like, you know, no, you know, that's like an 80%, you know, flag, not a hundred percent. So I don't want to taint everyone with that, but that's the, that's my odds on it. And, and what's your advice on sort of like the change management of execs? If, if 50% don't work out, probably most employees, you know, don't understand that or don't, yeah. you know, figure out that's normal. Do, is, is it something you're just prefacing with them or how do you think about change management in general as it relates to like, critical people. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, that's, a, it's a good question because there's, it's a hard answer in that you can't disempower that person by making it seem like they may not be here in a year. Uh, you have to be all in and, and because if you're not all in, then the people who they inherit won't be all in, they'll be looking for reasons, just human nature. Right. Uh, so you kind of have to be all in and if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It's, it's sort of these sort of like expecting expecting the unexpected. I know that, yes, this person may not work out and it's going to be, you know, a bomb dropped and I still have to do it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, so that's unfortunately the answer. Yeah. One of the things we, we started doing just because we have a we have a lot of younger people on the team who are kind of building their careers at OnDeck. Um, but then we have some people who've, who've, you know, like one of our key leaders was at uh, – was that we work through sort of the uh, journey, you know, just sort of sharing war stories of like, hey, what it looks like when you're, you know, obviously, the, you know, way further than we have so far, but just the the pros and cons of, of hyper growth yeah. and just kind of normalizing some of the some of the chaos. Yeah, I mean, you know, I do think the pro the problems with hyper growth, which are are actually we're coming to a point where because of the lessons learned on all these other companies that were imperfect there. I actually think now there are lessons learned that could like make a company sort of more durable through its hyper growth stage. And I, I will say that, you know, the business was going like this, you know, a slope of 80 degrees and the company building was going at like 60 degrees. And that means HR, legal finance, manager training, the things that glue a company together and keep it from going off the rails. Now you know that that's the risk because other companies have had that issue. You can sort of solve for that, which means the CEO's time has to adjust to spend, you know, more time on HR, legal finance training than you thought, than in previous generations of hypergrowth startups, because, because you're, you have a long-term mindset. You're like, okay, well, that's a risk. So I have to adjust away from that risk. And I think, you know, WeWork was obviously different than Uber in that, like, it wasn't clear that the business model worked at that valuation 
right? There were other, there was Regis and these other, other office sharing companies. And yeah, we were, sure, it was a better business maybe. But at no point was it clear that the, the marks were, were valid. Whereas Uber had revenues and it had unit economics and had, you know, churn, we had all the metrics. So, you know, having a business that people love and became a verb and whatever, obviously is something that, that was more durable. But yes, yeah, so some of those lessons I learned there, you know, I tell other founders who are doing, doing hyper growth. Totally. On the exec side, do you have any advice for how to, you know, you mentioned that you took a year and a half uh, for all the people who are trying to get their, their meal um, or, the, you know, their key exec, how to, you know, convince them to do it sooner just because it, it takes so long or what is sort of the um, key, key to closing? The keys to closing are, you know, execs are, you know, you've got to show the effort and commitment. Sometimes that means flying to where they are and meeting them in their space to get extra time that you wouldn't get if you're waiting for them to come to you, even if you're a hot company. It's showing that that you're interested it matters a lot to these people because they're probably in a stage of their career where they have options because they've been around a bit if you want them to be an exec there, right? Um, second is... You know, it is true that you're more likely to get someone who's in a relationship or as a family at that stage, and they're making a decision that's more collective than a single person, you know, who just graduated from college. So understanding those dynamics, asking about those dynamics, are you getting, you know, you have supportive family members or are they worried or whatever, you know, a little uncomfortable to get to go there sometimes, but it's, but people are pretty open and, you know, like uh, with that, if you're if you actually genuinely are like, look, I want you to be happy because this is a consuming job and you need support around you. The other thing on closing is like when they're ready to sign, like relentless on being signed, not like let me think about it on the weekend, get agreed upon times like you're going to decide by Friday at four. Right. Are we on the same page? You don't have to you don't have to put you know, the deadline to be unreasonable. You're like, do you need a week? Fine, let's do a week. But how about let's pick the date and time. So set the terms of the timetables in an agreed way and don't deviate. And you'll be like, hey, look, obviously it's not going to work if, if they can't get back to you, you know, but you got to put some some ground rules in place to force the heart, that sleepless night when the exec is like, am I going to do this or not? You got to force that conversation, that internal conversation. You know? One thing I'm seeing although maybe it's just isolated examples, is um, top executives, people who've done this for, for quite a long time at this stage in their career, like I'm starting to see some people who want to be kind of fractional executives. <laughs> and I'm curious if like if you came to a startup and was like, hey, I'll do 10 hours a week or 20 hours a week, but I'll do this at, you know, I'll do this among two different startups. Um, and a startup, you know, they could get someone else who's full-time, but way less experienced than you, et, et cetera, um, accomplished is it something where you 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 take it, or what's your what's your you know if you're the startup, what's your perspective on kind of fractional executives? Or I mean, I think that's fine. As an like that sort of to me describes an advisor relationship, right? It's like um, it's light it's lightweight enough uh, uh, where someone could actually probably do it, and you know they're not going to be involved in the details because you can't with a quarter of your time like run a function or lots of people or like do daily standups and all that stuff, right? So. To me, that's like explicitly an advisor. And you know what you're trying to get at, which is like, how do you try before you buy, right? Is the is, the, is sort of underlying yeah. these questions. And it, I, I think it comes down to reference checking. It comes down to spending time with them, breaking bread, understanding what drives them. Yeah. In, in the last question, it's more the opposite in the sense of we'd be, we'd be uh, you know, over the moon to have them full time. Yeah. But at this stage of their life, they kind of 
want to do part-time yeah. and, and what we're thinking is, oh, maybe we can convince them over time that, you know, they'll just fall in love with it. I, so I wouldn't do it for that reason, but I would say if you, if on a tactical basis, they would actually be helpful with a quarter of the time, they actually drive the business forward yeah. as a lure to try to get them interested. It doesn't quite work, but as a, yeah. as a, like, yeah, they, it, it might work that we recruit them full-time, but more than anything, I neither, I need their time and help. They would actually yeah. help us drive the business. Yeah. And, and when you were working with Travis before you joined, was it in an advisory capacity or what was, what did that look like? No, I was, you know, I was at cloud. Um, and you're just, recruiting. yeah, but you know, for me, the, the spotlight went off because when we first met, I was like, this is a black car service for rich people. How big could this be? And I didn't really see the vision when Uber X launched. I saw it. I finally was like, oh, I get it. Now this is why. And I called him. I was like, okay, I've been wrong. We need to sit down and like, see if we can figure something out. Um, and I moved to San Francisco. I was, you know, I was there with Cloud, and you know, that's how it went. Totally. Since Uber started a decade or you know, whenever it started to go, um, a lot has changed in terms of how companies operate. Um, you know, the remote versus non-remote expectations of a you know Gen Z or millennial you know workforce. And I'm I'm curious if Uber started in 2022 with the DNA of, you know, Travis and you and, and some of those, some of those early leaders, where would Uber have kind of like taken a position? And, and, and of course you guys are you know, still in the game in your, your respective ways. And, and, but um, what, what do you expect that would have looked like for, for, for Uber yeah. in terms of where it would have stood on some of these issues? Some it's questions. a great question. I mean, it's uh, what, one of the things we did believe in back when the company was started was, you know, quality of person first, location second. So we kind of had this mentality in the beginning of, a, you know, not for everyone, especially at the, like, if you're CFO of a, this company that was like really big, you had to be at headquarters. But for, for most functions, you can have remote. So we thought that early because we were early users of Zoom. We, we, we had a global business to begin with. So the notion of communicating over video was sort of built into the business model. So that was one principle that would have survived, like sort of been, you know, ahead of the game in today's world. Uh, I think, you know, it's interesting with the sort of work habits of the next generation. It would, it would, it would definitely be hard to, to sort of institute a hustle culture in today's environment to the extent we did. We interviewed for that. Like, you know, we would still try to do that. I think, you know, maybe would have taken sort of a little bit more of a Coinbase approach insofar as, you know, let us, you know, this is what we're selecting for. We're going to be explicit about it. It's not for everybody and yeah. use that to, to recruit. Because I think right now companies can be, should be what they want, but they need to be explicit about it because people have so much choice. And so yeah. if they're not happy, they're, you're actually going to lose them. The cycles of people leaving jobs are increasing, not decreasing. So your responsibility as a, as a leader is to sort of say, okay, I want people who are going to be here for as long as I can keep them. So let me be as explicit as possible about what this job and what this culture is. And people will select in, you know, I'm going to have a better chance of retaining for a long time. But back yeah. then you were less explicit about it. These things weren't as high profile people, you know, as they were these kinds of issues. Work-life balance, all yeah. that stuff. No one talked about that. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, you know, you have Coinbase, you have like Palantir, Andrel, but these are like some. I, I, I imagine just much smaller than Uber was in terms of like workforce. 
you know, it's, it's one thing to, you know, certainly get, get to a hundred of people like-minded, you know, certainly get to a thousand people like-minded, but once you, I don't know who, how big Uber was in the peak, but once you're getting to like tens of thousands of people, you know, it, it feels hard to just really keep that, yeah. you know, rigor, hustle, contrarian culture. Yeah, it's very hard. <laughs> I think, you know, and this is part of, again, what I learned lessons learned, which is, you're, you know, you're for a startup like you are, like your company is now, you're a tribe for a long time, right? You're a tribe. And as you get bigger and you get to the scale that over 15,000, 20,000 people, your civilization, right? You have everything that you have constituents, you have all kinds of things. And you have to sort of accept that that is going to have some effect on, you know, the sort of, the, the tribal sort of messaging of we have to win and some of the rah-rah stuff that, that you could do, you have to be a little bit more diplomatic. So like what companies have done as well, I mean, you know, I would say that people we hired from Facebook still have a lot more of that DNA than Google people did, um, you know, just culturally. And that's because, you know, Mark, Mark seems to be very hands-on, like involved in the company. But it's hard to do that. You do have to moderate. There's no, there's no way you can be a tribe inside a big business that's truly civilization. Just can't. It just can't be done. Um, but as much as you can hold on to that, the better. Uh, and some companies do it better than others. But and tr- typically, the leaders who come in, who are hard guns, they can't. They have to go full civilization, full, you know, full company yeah. sort of diplomat. The founders have a shot at keeping it a little more aggressive. Yeah. I'm curious how you think about kind of company storytelling or, or company comms, um, because I feel like that's evolved too, where, um, you know, you have people like Balaji and, and Mike Solana and others who've really advocated for, you know, companies to go direct and, and build their own, you know, messaging. Um, but, that, but that means they have to put in the work and become storytellers and go in all the podcasts or create the podcasts or create the yeah. distribution and, and kind of created this like parallel, you know, distribution mechanism so they don't go to the previous yeah. kind of gatekeepers. Do you, do you think that's something that, that Uber would have done uh, or what, what's your stance on it uh, would have done today? What's your stance on, on that? Because my understanding was that Uber was fairly quiet in, in, or, you know, focused on the work itself yeah. rather than on the, the hype. Yeah, we did not do a great job of comms, obviously, uh, you know, and I think we did it in a much more traditional way of the old school way. So my only answer is like, that didn't work. So yes, uh, when we started the company today, I'd be like, yes, let's, we got to try something different. Yeah, those things that you mentioned, podcasts and all that stuff is time consuming. So maybe it's not the, the CEO who does it. Maybe it's someone else. Like someone has to have that as a big part of their job um, to communicate to the world what the company is and isn't. You know, I think that one of the things I saw recently was that Mark Zuckerberg appointed this Nick Clegg guy to be president of, you know, some division of Facebook, which includes communications. Maybe that's a version of that, that the, like he's going to be more visible and be be someone who's in charge of doing all the things you're talking about because someone has to do that work. But the sort of normal channels don't work because as we know, you know, media has changed dramatically and therefore, you know, you have to be telling your own message or, you know, you're going to be subject to um, sort of everyone else's filter on what you're doing, right? So I'm not an extremist on this stuff. I'm just more of a companies have to adapt to a changing environment. Yeah, totally. At a high level, from what I'm hearing from you, if I were to like project, you know, let's say in that book, 
you know, the Blitzscaling book, here, here are the things that Uber, you know, absolutely crushed, legendary company that other companies, you know, can take on. And then just like any other success story, here are things that we wish we we, we could have done differently. My understanding is is what, what you might say is something along the lines of, hey, be more explicit, both internally and externally, internally what you stand for, even if it's, you know, if it's not going to make everyone happy, that that's even better because it, it self-selects the right people, which is important as you scale. And then be more explicit, you know, externally of, hey, you know, we're not going to let other people tell our story or, or tell us what we stand for, or tell us incorrect stuff about how we're operating or, or what we're doing. We're not going to let that be like the final record without us having our voice. And, and maybe, and, and then of course, other things, you know, like pick the right investors or pick the right partners or, or whatever it is on that front. Would you edit anything there or anything you'd, you'd add on to, onto that? Yeah, I'd, I'd, so I'd edit or I'd, I'd say one thing. Like, I, I think we'd tell the story differently just because that didn't work, not because I was like, I know what would work. Yeah. So it's more of a reaction. But, but the one thing I would add, which I mentioned earlier in the conversation, is you have to make this shift toward big company or let's call it diplomacy, change in language, like you just have to do it. And you, know, you should be ahead of it. We were behind it. So let me give you an example. One of our cultural values was toast stepping on toes. And that was what that meant. What that meant, what we meant by that was we wanted younger people to be empowered to bring their ideas to senior people and be heard out. Like demand that your idea be considered. It's just because someone has more tenure doesn't mean they're right. So, you know, challenge conventional wisdom afterwards, like in 2017, that turned into some something else. And it turned into this sort of like toe-stepping as this physical act. You're like, no, that's not what it was. it was. So you see like the things you did in your early days as a tribe, even just, it could be subtle language changes. There could be ways when you describe the same thing kind of matter more than you think they do. And, you know, and you're appealing to a wider audience of people. You have a bar customer base. And so you have to kind of, revert a little bit to the mean as opposed you know that you're serving in one in a way yeah we say a lot internally as well this idea of like you know what got you here won't get you yeah. there but it, it's kind of hard to know when when one starts and one ends and the other starts yeah. <laughs> in terms of like okay we've been doing this this whole time it's been working now i guess we could change it but also like it's been working so so like what you know that, that kind I, of look uh, i think you could go up until it stops working, but don't try to yeah. make it work when you know it's not working anymore. You're like, you know, this, yeah. I want this to keep working. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. sort of accept reality. I don't think you have to be, you know, super ahead of it, but you have to be responsive to it, maybe I should say at least. Yeah. We've grown really fast recently, but we do have some people who've been here for for for, for quite a bit. We, we started on deck in 2017 and, you know, company journeys are long, so we're nowhere near the end of the even first chapter. But I'm I'm curious how you think about kind of the multiple like different, you know, kind of eras of, of, of Uber or of a company. And you have some people who will go the distance, you, uh, you know, a lot won't. Um, and how you think about just like that, that process of, of a team changing or evolving or um, where it's on a bottoms up or tops down level. How, how do you think about that? Yeah. You know, I think employees like over the three sort of eras I've been in in tech, you know, the, 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 the likelihood that an employee goes a distance has decreased with every era, partially because there's a lot more money from venture capital going into new companies. There's a lot more founders, there's a lot more of everything, a lot more choice. Um, so obviously one of the things that cures that is an increasing stock price because people are like, okay, well, the first grant I got is worth more every year than the second grant I got continues to go. So like, you, you know, you layer these vesting schedules 
on. So they have a long-term financial incentive that's plain and easy to understand. But then that means that you're succeeding, right, at doing the stock price. Every company goes through hard times, though. So like, okay, what do you do during hard times? I mean, I think you got to identify the people who you know are going distance, make sure you're doing the best to keep them. They're your best ambassadors. They're usually the magnets who attract other people with their their missionary sort of um, sort of outlook. And, you know, one could say, well, that's, you know, you're, you're rewarding people who, you know, you know really well because they've been with you longer. You're like, yeah, because you know, they're the heart and soul of this. They understand the, the culture. They're going to be the best recruiters. They're going to be whatever. So, but that's what you have to do. You have to really have a tight group around you and try to keep them uh, as long as, and, and it can't just be money. It has to be sort of motivation. It has to be growth. It has to be opportunities you're helping them find. Like I would find them advisory gigs at other companies. Like do you want to angel invest? Like as they started to do that, help them sort of expand their scope inside and outside the company. So they had a lot more attachment to the, to the ecosystem of the company. And caring about that, I cared a lot about it, right? I would spend a lot of time with people, especially as they got toward, you know, the midterm, you know, two, three, four years into Uber, making sure I understood what they needed to go the distance and and that I was doing it. So, it was, you know, and, and that's why your job as an entrepreneur turns into a management job, whether you like it or not, to a large degree, because you become dependent on these people and you need to spend, put in the time as a manager and as a leader to actually understand and deliver these kinds of things, because that pays off in, you know, in big ways if you're able to keep that core group motivated. Yeah, totally. I want to segue a bit into uh, M&A. And I'm, I'm curious what your, your broad level advice for how, to, how, how you thought about M&A at, at, at Uber and uh, you know, when you advise um, startups who are bring, building M&A functions, um, what's really important to get right? M&A uh, buying companies is hard to do in a private to private setting because everyone's valuation is dependent on their last round and sort of the argument of what's who's worth what, assuming you're not paying with cash, is like an ever-present argument. And therefore, you end up seeing a lot of talent acquisitions and small deals when a company's clearly failing and they start bailing them out for tech. But in terms of a, a strong company buying another strong private company, it's really hard. So the success, you just have to accept that the success rate on actually closing a deal is really hard. And then if you do close one, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Like we tried to merge with Lyft many times and it was still the right thing to do. I wish we did it. We should have done it. It was this relative value argument that was sort of predominant. But once you do it, you kind of have to decide what you want out of that company. Do you want the leadership to transition after two years or do you want them for to be part of the part of the effort for the next foreseeable future and be realistic about that because usually an entrepreneur who you've acquired doesn't want to be not an entrepreneur at your company, right? So being realistic about what you expect from them and what you get with them sort of sets the tone for their whole company, the company you're acquiring, all the employees. And then having a way of checking in and seeing if like the best lessons learned are when you look back in acquisition and say, what we did, what did we do right and wrong? So that no one ever does this. They buy a company and they forget about it. You know, they miss their metrics, the things like, you know, the people leave, they're boy, they go split up into the company. And no one ever goes back and says, why did that happen? And what would we do different? The best corp dev guys and gals think about that a lot and try in the in, in the acquisition process to plan for, you know, 
what this company is going to look like in two or three years inside this company. Um, and is it what we want? And is it worth it? And what's the likelihood of success and all that? Yeah. So it's a little bit like FP&A inside of M&A, if that makes sense. That's really interesting. Don't share anything you, you shouldn't share. But to the, to the idea of like the Lyft Uber acquisition, I'm curious because, you know, a lot of companies have direct competitors that, you know, they are worth more than maybe twice as much or, you know, 1.5 or whatever, you know, it's close. And they might be listening to this thinking, hey, should I be trying to, you know, merge or acquire even if they think they're worth more than than they are, et cetera. When does it, when do you think it makes sense? Like in order for that, for that to have made sense for you guys, you would have have to believe that even, uh, you know, if you're giving up a big stake, that smaller stake with Lyft would have been worth much more because together you're just way more powerful. Like, do you think more companies should be, should be partnering with their competitors or merging with the competitors or like, what do you think about that? I mean, I, I generally think there's under consolidation in private tech, uh, for too long. And, you know, I'm, I'm biased a little bit by this Uber Lyft sort of thing, which like the money, the, the subsidy wars continued for so much longer that everyone took dilution, like everyone sort of lost in a way. And the market for riders wasn't quite market driven because of all the subsidies. Are good. So you didn't really know what was real and what wasn't, what was driven by sort of subsidies. Yeah which allowed you to correct, it took a longer time to correct. And like right now Uber's correcting into like, what is, what are users willing to pay? What do drivers need to make to, you know, to have this balance? So, but this is so hard to emotionally get over acquiring or merging with a, a direct competitor. It's so hard on the valuation thing. It's so hard, but I think, I think companies need to try. Um, and I think they should do more of it and they should do it earlier. Yeah. And it just typically makes more sense because Today, the biggest businesses have multiple lines of business. They have like lots of execs who are really great. I mean, look at how many execs are at Facebook who are great. You know, who, you know, a lot, several have left. We have David Marcus. You had like a lot, like Hugo Bar. You had these great execs who are either from acquisitions or um, who've like rose, risen up to be big parts of the business. So I really think, you know, if you're going to be a generational company, you need to think about that earlier. Yeah. It's really interesting. One thing you guys thought about as you entered all these markets um, is, you know, do you do you build from scratch? Do you, you know, partner with the local local pl- player? Do you compete with them? You know, obviously you had the the DD China experience. You know, I'm not I'm not sure how, how much you, you you can share there, but just in general, what, what what did you learn about that that process of 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 the build versus buy versus partner? I mean, we were definitely uh, more of a build company. Uber Eats, self-driving cars, you know, all, all that sort of thing. We did some smart acquisitions, but mostly we built it. And when I think about that, I mean, it's a mixed, it's a mixed bag, right? If uh, I think it would have been right to acquire Lyft and as opposed to building a brand that appealed to the customers that they had. And they're, they're literally, I mean, they, their customers didn't overlap with ours for a long time because they had a unique brand. It was playful. It was sort of different. It was, you know, lighter weight. Um, it was sort of coming UberX up, but we were coming black car down. But the build buy thing, you know, most acquisitions fail. But then look at Instagram and WhatsApp inside of Facebook, or YouTube, inside of Google. So it's just hard to have a, a one size fits all approach on this. But when you're doing the build buy analysis, be realistic. That is my advice to, to leaders and corporate people and finance people. It's like, be realistic, right? Wait, like, yeah, you're like, we could build that in six months with 10 engineers. 
do you, but like, don't your, doesn't your main business need all the engineers it can get? So like, are you actually going to build this thing in six months? And if you don't, have you lost market position? Cause it's going to take you a year longer. And how much is that worth? And being really smart about, are you, what would you actually have to do to build this? And if you were, if you haven't built that in your plan, then, and you don't do this acquisition, then build it into the plan because that's what you want to do, right? It's sort of forcing the issue if you really want to build something, right? Um, into the plan uh, and really being realistic about it. Yeah. And so let's say you're advising or you invested in a company and the company has is, is lost its, its founder. The, you know, five years go by or 10 years went by and, and the founders moved on to other things or, or was pushed out or, or whatever it is. You know, one answer could be, hey, it's over for you guys. <laughs> what works there? Like what, what's, what advice do you have for like turnaround CEOs, I guess, or, or CEOs who are trying to lead companies to a new place or? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the counter argument to the founder thing is Satya at Microsoft and Tim Cook at Apple, right? Apple wasn't a forced situation. It was sort of a, a succession situation. And they've been wildly successful. Um, so what, what did they do? Well, on the Microsoft side, Satya decided it was going to be more open than closed, right? You know, you're going to be able to get your, your office apps on your iPhone. Um, and that sort of shift in sort of thinking was the was the opposite of the bomber gates approach which again the bomber gates approach may have been right at that point but the world had changed uh, with mobile and satya saw that and he was right so you kind of in a way you have to be right when you come in if you have a big idea and then you have to relentlessly pursue it like his thesis was we got to be more open more open more open more open and he was right and he had the sort of technical depth to do it, and he was inspirational. So he changed the culture. Of my, you know, so the second thing he did is change the culture. Microsoft was very hierarchical, and you know had like you know eighteen levels, and they were rigid about who got promoted. What you, he changed it all and made it all much more discretion based. So he let cream rise to the top, whether it was young or not. So I guess my my answer to that long way of saying it, the short way of saying it is, you got to come in with the thesis. And the thesis has to be big and transformational, and it may not work. But if it does work, you end up with what Satya did or what Tim Cook did. Now, T Tim Cook, people said, remember when he took over, Apple hasn't created anything new in a while. It's not going to succeed. You know, your same old iPhone. People are not using iPads anymore. What do you do? He built a massive accessory business, a massive app store business, like completely massive, right? And uh, the bigger than most Fortune 500 companies. And op squeeze operational efficiency out of the system, and they're the biggest company in the world. Like, have they invented the new Hololens thing yet? Maybe not. Are they, you know, but he took the business in a direction that worked, and so it's really having a strong point of view. I guess is my question. Is my is my answer? Yeah, fascinating. Z zooming out a bit and, and nearing towards close. Uber is, um, you know, an iconic company. You know. Um, kind of representative of a certain generation in, 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 in some ways. And, you know, it's interesting when there's a lot of hoopla around a company or, or books, you know, written or, or TV shows or movies written, you know, the companies like Facebook or Twitter, who are also iconic, emblematic of a certain time period, you know, the, the leaders of those companies typically have a different story, perhaps, than the the, the story that gets <laughs> that gets told. Do you feel any... Uh, well, I guess two various questions. One is, do you feel any interest in uh, telling your own version of the Uber story in, in some medium? Or do, or do you think that there will be a, a counter story told there? You know, the, the counter story is being told by a lot of the people who are early on at Uber are now starting their own companies and building them. And 
and and talking to hundreds and hundreds of, of young people about the great things they learned, the best time of their life. Here's, you know, what they learned. So that there is sort of an infiltration of that happening. And then Uber Network's super strong, and I think it'll continue to get stronger. You know, do people care anymore is the question. I, you know, I, I think if you looked at the stats and who bought the recent book or who bought, who's watching the show, it's like you could count it in the low hundreds of thousands of people in a country of three, three, you know, 350 million people in a, with a brand that maybe a couple billion people knew about. So I don't, and obviously since 2017, lots of other companies have realized that like workplaces have to be reformed and like no company's immune from, yeah. from needing to change and adapt. So I think it's like, okay, well, yeah, well, there's a lot of, a lot of, this is not that unique a story anymore, Yeah. but you know, I always reserve the right to tell it, uh, <laughs> you know, but yeah, but uh, so, so, but I haven't yet because we had to bake and see what it yeah. became, what was in retrospect. And I'd say the epilogue is being written now. The company is a shell of what it was. Yeah. And so, you know, I, one of the investors used to say, like, we were on the right side of history when, when Travis and I left the company. You're like, I don't know about that. It looks like it's been the wrong side of history and it's played out. Um, so, you know, without being trying to be defensive about it, that's my point of view on it. Yeah, no, totally. In, in closing, do you have a... How are you spending your time now? How do you how do you want to be spending? Like, do you have a next big act in you, or you know, what's your north star going forward? I mean, I have spent the last four years working as a kind of a let's say a, like trying to mold my what I do around what Bill Campbell did for a lot of young entrepreneurs. Uh, he was my coach. He was Steve Jobs' coach. He was Larry Page's coach. I do it a little more commercially and a little more in depth. So I picked a few companies and and we that I liked and where the founders and I got along, GoPuff, Brex, Revolut, cool. Q Health, where we had a lot to uh to of camaraderie. And I, I kind of work with them on the things I'm best at, MA, fundraising, executive hiring, and so on, hyper growth. And it's like a job that I spend a quarter of my time on per company. <laughs> and I get a lot out of it because they want these, these companies have, are all in hyper growth. They're all super interesting, all great entrepreneurs. Um, and I invest in them alongside of doing an advisory thing. And it's been really rewarding. It's different than, than being a general in the field, being, a co- being more of a coach, but it's been very rewarding to, to you know, get the next generation sort of uh, forward. Yeah, I love that. That's a that's a that's inspiring work. Uh, it's a great great place to to wrap as well. Uh, Emil, thanks for, so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a really uh, fascinating episode. Learned a lot. It was great to talk to you. Good luck uh, with your hyper growth. Very impressive, and I'm uh, I'm really happy for you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Execs is produced by OnDeck, where top talent goes to start companies, find their next roles, or invest in their careers. If you're looking to start a company, uplevel your career, or navigate a career transition, I encourage you to visit beyonddeck.com. See you next time.